The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. And it is our great privilege that we come to this passage of Scripture this morning that contains the greatest promise that we have in the Word of God. Now, there might be some argument about which text and which promises are the best that we find in the Bible. But if we were to look for the ones that are repeated the most often, then without doubt we would have to say that what we're reading about here in this part of Matthew 24 is the greatest promise that God has ever given. And that is the promise that Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth again. There is no doubt what a great promise that is because the Bible is geared towards that one great event. It's spoken of many times throughout the Scripture, and this is the time that we have this great hope that Jesus Christ is going to come and rule over this world in perfect peace and righteousness. And when you think about what is the greatest event that's happened in the Bible, most of us, our, our minds would go to the first advent of Christ. And, of course, that is tremendously significant because that's when our Lord Jesus Christ, in his love for this world, came to this world and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And it's certainly true that the apostles, after they came to faith in Christ and they were given a commission, they spent their lives talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. And still today, when, when I come and stand before you and Christians throughout the centuries have always done this, we've always talked about the blessed cross of Jesus Christ and the fact that he came into the world to die for our sins. It's a wonderful thing that Christ came into the world and we love the cross. We love the old rugged cross as the song says and we cherish the old rugged cross. And yet we recognize that the cross itself was a necessary stepping stone in the process of filling up the kingdom that God is going to bring to this world, filling up this kingdom with righteousness. Now, the Old Testament scriptures are filled with references to the kingdom. And so when Christ came at first, when Jesus at first came into the world, the disciples were tuned into the kingdom. Jesus was their Messiah, and Messiah has no reference at all unless you're talking about the kingdom. And in this text of Matthew 24, we don't have here a prophet's view of the kingdom, or at least not an ordinary prophet. That is, if you would want to call the Old Testament prophets ordinary. This is not an ordinary prophet's view of the coming of Christ. This is not an incomplete picture. It's not a prediction that we find in the Old Testament where the Old Testament prophets blended together first advent and second advent prophecies. But here we have the Messiah himself. Jesus Christ himself speaking of this kingdom and he sets it for another time and for another place. And then he uses the Old Testament prophets to clarify these promises and to give us a vivid explanation of what will happen in the world before this kingdom of Christ comes again. Now, if you'll take your Bibles then and look at Matthew 24 and verse number 27, and I will ask you to stand one more time, if you will. And I'm going to keep you just a little bit here today. 
Uh, this is too big of a subject, too great of a subject to pass over lightly. And uh, you'll find it is the greatest promise, although you might not appreciate this sermon as being the greatest sermon about it. But we'll do our best as the Lord leads us. Verse number 27, Jesus said, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Father, we thank you for this word that we've read. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and how much we anticipate his coming again. Help us, Lord, to understand your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there are many aspects of the second coming of Christ that we would talk, could talk about today. And, and my purpose today is not really to give you all the information that could be given. That would take us a long time. And, and as we go through this, we, we've got a couple of chapters here, Matthew 24 and 25, that deal with the coming of the Lord. And we'll, we'll spend some time and add some things to the things that I'll say today at a later time. But one of the very significant parts of the second coming, and it's actually a preliminary part to it, and you might not think of it this way, but a preliminary part to the coming of Christ into the world or to set up his kingdom in the world is the rapture. Now, in the rapture, we believe that the Bible teaches us that God's people are going to be called up into the air to meet Christ. Now, the rapture is not an event that's actually mentioned in this particular part of the Scripture. This is what happens after the tribulation. In verse number 29, Jesus speaks of immediately after the tribulation, and so we know that he's not speaking about the rapture. The prophecy and the main event that's taken under consideration here is the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory after this horrible seven years of tribulation that will come upon the earth. Now, Jesus describes this in a general sense in verses 4 through 14. And then he got more dramatic with it and more specific about it as he came to verse number 15 and began to unfold some prophecies about the Antichrist. And so in verses 15 through 26, Jesus is there speaking about the Antichrist and the terror that he's going to bring upon the earth, an intensified amount of terror that takes place during the last half of the tribulation. In those last three and a half years, the Antichrist will break a, a peace treaty that he has with Israel. He will desecrate their temple, and then immediately he's going to go up on a binge in which he will try, a persecution binge in which he will try to eliminate the nation of Israel from this world. And part of that destructive campaign will be the, the deceit of false Christ. Now, the Antichrist, of course, is the chief false Christ, but there are others that are like him as well. And it's their job, or you might say it's their goal, to deceive Israel. And so they will try to turn Israel away from the truth. They'll try to get Israelites, the Jews that have gone in hiding because of the Antichrist, they'll try to lure them out, to take them to places where they can be 
killed. And in verse number 26, Jesus warns about that. And he says to them, don't go there. Don't go out in the desert. Don't go out into secret places. Don't be deceived. And the reason that he says for them not to be deceived is that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in power and great glory, it is going to be a recognizable event. And there's going to be no doubt who he is and no doubt that he's here. Now, as we look at this text today, there are three characteristics that I want to show you about this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're talking about here the second coming, which is the phase that happens after the tribulation period. Now, first of all, we'll notice about this that it is a time of stunning recognition. That the second coming is not going to be a hidden event. It's an electrifying event in which Jesus said, or he describes it as lightning that shines from one end of the heavens to the other. And this is why, again, that Jesus says, don't go into the secret places. Don't wonder about this because when he comes, everyone's going to know that he has arrived. This is a stunning event. And it's such an event that the Antichrist has no possibility of duplicating it. Now, what the Antichrist is doing, again, he's trying to deceive people. He's trying to throw people off. But when Christ comes, this event, the Antichrist is not going to be able to fake. He's not going to be able to make it look like uh, he's the real Christ at this time. And I think that the fully public nature of this part of the second coming is different from what's going to happen at the rapture. Now, in Acts chapter 1, the angels watched and the people watched as Jesus ascended into heaven. And there in Acts chapter 1, the angel said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now, Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, and when he comes back to establish his kingdom on the earth, it is to the Mount of Olives that he will return, and he's going to return in a great cosmic display that the world will see. But I think the rapture is going to be different. At the rapture, Christ does not descend to the earth. He calls his saints into the air. The dead in Christ shall rise first, Scripture says, and then those that are alive and remain will be translated, and they'll be given bodies like the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will go up and also meet Christ in the air. And I don't think that that's going to be a public event that all the unbelievers of the world are going to see. Now, they'll see the results of it, but there's going to be a veil that's put over their eyes and they're not going to know exactly what's happened. And the reason that I know this is because the Bible teaches that there is going to be a full-on apostate church that's left in the world after Jesus comes. They're not going to see that Christ has come again. And so they're going to gather on the very next Sunday morning and they are going to continue to preach as they've always preached. And if they ever did preach that Christ is returning, they're still going to preach that Christ is returning. And unfortunately for them, when the Antichrist comes, they're going to receive him as their Christ instead of the real Christ. And I'm afraid for this, very sadly, that there are some church members that should Jesus return now, that they're actually still in unbelief. And there may be some church members who will show up here next Sunday. And you may wonder, why isn't there a preacher here? Why aren't the members that I usually sit beside, why aren't they here? It's Sunday morning, it's time to have church. 
And people will not have recognized that Christ has actually come again. Now, interestingly, the writer of Hebrews speaks to the issue of unbelieving church members. In the book of Hebrews 3, verse 12, it says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. There are some people in church that are unbelievers. They're not going to recognize the rapture. And then we couldn't imagine for a moment that the Jews would recognize the rapture. I mean, here are people that as soon as the tribulation begins, they're going to enter into a peace treaty with the Antichrist. They're going to eagerly have their temple rebuilt and they want to resume their sacrifices. So they're not going to see Christ come back. They won't recognize the rapture and say, well, this is the coming of the one we've been waiting for. But here in this particular scripture, Jesus shows us something much different. This is not the rapture. And there is no mistake what takes place. There's not time for another recognition of him. This is the end. This is coming down to the last of it. This is before the kingdom begins in this world. And so people are going to know this is the real Christ. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Every eye shall see him. And so they'll, they'll know him because this is a great display of his, of his omnipotence. He shows his power over the creation by throwing the entire co- uh, cosmos into chaos right in front of their eyes. In, in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter said, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. You know, every day when you wake up, you expect that today will be just like the day before. There's order to the universe, isn't there? We expect everything to happen just like it's always happened. And the reason that we do is because Christ is the one who keeps it that way. He's the one who that controls it all. But here we find that in the very last day, the thing that is denied by the world scientists is going to be proved. And that is that Christ does uphold all things by the word of his power. And what he's going to do in this last day is he's going to loosen up some of that grip that he has upon this universe. And he's going to let things happen that have never happened before. Now, this is chaos, as I said, but it's actually a controlled chaos because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to use it for his own purposes. Notice what he says in verse number 29. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now, if you'll let me, let's go over to Luke chapter 21 for just a moment. And here we see the same incident, Jesus speaking, and Luke just gives us a little bit more detail about what Christ said on this occasion. And so in Luke chapter 21, and beginning at verse number 25, Jesus is speaking, and he says, There shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory." And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. 
Now, the judgments that the Scripture is speaking of here correspond to what we read about the opening of the seventh seal in the book of Revelation. And in that seventh seal, there are seven vials of wrath that are quickly poured out on the earth. In rapid succession, these vials are poured out, judgments are poured out. And I'm sorry I don't have time to go into all of that today, but if you want to read about that, make a note of Revelation 16, and you can read about these vials of wrath that will be poured out upon the earth. But what we see in the pouring out of these judgments of God, the rapid judgments that come, is that God is changing the universe. That God is rearranging things. That God is taking planets out of their orbits. That he's afflicting the sun and the moon and the stars. And scientists will tell you that can't happen. There's order to the universe, you know. Now they want to talk about order when in fact order defeats their own theories of a godless universe. There is order because there is a God. But they say things like this can't happen. We know the laws of physics. We know the laws of gravitation. And if a planet were to suddenly change its orbit or a heavenly body should change to go into a different position... Well, we would know about that because we can predict those things. We can see the, we can see the degradation of these, of these planets as they begin to change. And we know all of that. We know the physics of it. But what they don't actually know is the God who does all of those things. And one of these days, they're going to meet him as God takes all of this into his hands. He throws it into a chaotic state that will be utterly disastrous. But scientists say we ought to be able to predict such things. The change in the orbit of a planet, that's gradual. But this is not that. This is sudden. The laws of nature don't permit it. But this is Jesus Christ. This is the Almighty God who's giving a display of his awesome power. Hebrews 1.3 says that all things are upheld by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says that all things consist by his power. And so this is a display of his power that no antichrist could do. These are miracles that Satan can never duplicate. And so there will be no mistake who really is the God of this world. Now it's interesting that, that Jesus quoted Old Testament prophecy to confirm what he said. Jesus, in his humanity, was a student of the Old Testament scriptures. He was like you and me. He he had to grow up. He had to learn. The Bible says that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So he had to learn these things as he was growing up. That's in his humanity. But as God, in his divinity, he's the one who actually gave all of the Old Testament prophecies. And he knew what all of these prophecies meant. Now, I'd like you, if you would, to turn over to the book of Isaiah for just a minute. And in Isaiah chapter 6, or 13 rather, we have here Isaiah's prediction of the doom of Babylon. But it's obvious as we read this, and you'll notice as we go through, that the Holy Spirit must have had much more in mind than just a prophecy about Babylon. There's more intended here. And Jesus used this scripture to describe his second coming. And, And I'll notice as we read through how it parallels the text that we have in Matthew and also what we just read in Luke. In Isaiah 13, verse 6, it says, Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. 
They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven... And the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. How is that possible? How is it possible that the constellations of the heaven should stop giving their light? How is it possible that the sun could be blotted out? How could it be possible that you couldn't see the moon? How can any of that happen without any indication? How can any of this happen at all? It can't. Unless the one who has the power to create the universe and to structure it, unless he should alter it by an act, by his own act of unfathomable power. Now, is that serious? Well, you better believe this is serious. Scientists are worried about the effects of global warming. That that's a slow change, if at all. They worry about what's going to happen with the melting of polar ice caps. They're worried about flooded streets and cities that are uninhabitable. They're concerned about things like oxygen depletion. And I've read that the United States replaces only about 60% of the oxygen that we use. I've also read that whenever I visit my grandkids in San Diego, that my car uses enough oxygen in one trip to supply the life of a man for a year. And so I suppose that with a trip down there and back, I kill at least two people. And that's okay, because if you had my grandkids, you'd kill to see them too, so that's not a problem. But we're concerned about all of these subtle changes that take place, and these changes take years. But what if God should just just suddenly decide to take Venus and move its orbit over a little bit towards the Earth? What would happen then? Well, scientists will tell us what would happen then. The gravitational pull of that would throw off the tides of the ocean. It would pull them up over the land. It would shift that. It, it would also trigger seismic activity. Volcanoes would begin to erupt. Earthquakes would be massive. And that's just what Jesus explained, didn't he? Isn't that what he's already said in the passage that we read previous to this? And what about global warming? What if God should shut out the sun Then we have global freezing, and that happens instantly. So what will you do? Well, I will turn up the heat. And and I've just asked you, what do you do when it's so cold that fuel freezes or mechanical devices can't start? Do you have enough insulation in your house, Californian, to keep you warm at 100 below zero? I don't think so. You know, I was amazed and amused when I first came to California. And I came to Rohnert Park. And I saw people wearing snow boots and stocking hats and ski jackets in the winter in Rona Park, California. You people have no clue. You're, you're totally crazy about what winter really is. But this is what the Bible's talking about, a darkened sun. And those of you that are cold in here right now, you're doubly crazy. But anyway, this is what's going to happen. A darkened sun, a blackened universe... And everybody's going to get down on their knees and they're going to pray to Carl Sagan and Stephen Hawking. What happened? 
What's going on? There's no mistake about this. This is not something that can be done by a fake Christ in the desert. This is not a pretend prophet of Satan. This is the Christ. And there will be no mistake when he comes. Verse number 30 says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Now this is, at least to me, intensely interesting. As I read about things like this and wonder where people get the ideas or what they take from the Bible as they read it, there are many Christians, or at least the ancient Christians, who thought that there would be a huge sign in the sky when Christ returns. Many of them believed that this huge sign would be a cross. A huge, monstrous cross would be the sign that Jesus is returning. And there are some who say that that thinking was influenced by Constantine, who claimed to have seen a cross in the sky, or that Constantine himself may have been influenced by these early Christian writings and And so he thought that he saw a cross in the sky. Well, I don't think either of those is true. First of all, I don't think that Constantine saw anything in the sky. I think Constantine was a heathen pragmatist who knew how to solidify power with religion. He didn't see anything in the sky. But I don't think that Jesus is coming back with a cross. And if he did, I think that it would only be to burn this image into the people's brains about what they did to him and really what they're still doing to him today. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Now, I don't think that this is talking about another sign, a separate sign, but I think this means Christ himself is that sign. Or that better interpreted, we could read this, and there shall appear a sign which is the Son of Man. That now he is the sign of the kingdom. That means it's here when you see him coming in glory. Now, before it was things that pointed to the kingdom, the tribulation and all the things that happened there. But now we're talking about the kingdom is here and the sign that it is here is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the king in the kingdom. And so this is a time of stunning recognition. Put aside all doubts about what's happening. This is the real deal. This is Christ. This is the hope of Israel. This is the hope of the world. And he has arrived in power and in glory. Now, notice secondly that it is a time of frightening regret. It's a time of stunning recognition and a time of frightening regret. Now back there in Luke chapter 21, Jesus said that men's hearts will fail them for fear. That's what you call heart attack. So afraid of what they see that they'll die of heart attack. Matthew said that the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see him. You thought about that? Why are they going to mourn? Why will people mourn when the blessed king, when the righteous one from God, when the one who's going to bring peace over all of the earth, why will they mourn when they see this king come? And I'll tell you why they mourn. It's because they hate righteousness. I don't care how many bumper stickers that you see around town that say peacefully coexist. People don't really want peace because peace only comes with righteousness. People are unrighteous and so they don't want peace. The world is filled with unrighteousness and they don't want righteousness because the righteousness the Bible speaks of here is a righteousness that comes at their expense. People are God-haters. And I think it was Julie who told me a week or so ago that Elton John said that if Jesus was here, that he would be okay with gay marriage. Well, pardon me if I disagree with this great theologian Elton John who is an expert on Jesus... 
But the Bible teaches he's coming to rule in righteousness. And it's going to be at the expense of the God-haters who have actually remolded God into their image. The only thing, way that you can come up with anything like Elton John said is you just make yourself a new God because you don't have the God of the Bible. And the politicians that have done nothing but try to overthrow righteousness, they are going to mourn. Those who legislate for gay rights and abortion and for smoking pot and pornography, they are going to mourn. You know, I think it was Al Mohler, who is president of Southern Seminary, who said that these movements have to keep coming up with new letters to describe their names. He said first it was G, and then it was L, gay and lesbian. Then they added T for transgender. And then they added B for the bisexuals. And you wait, soon they'll add P for the pedophiles. And then they'll add another B for bestiality. Then they'll add another AAG for anything that's against God. And they are going to mourn when righteousness comes because it will be at their expense. And God tells us that he is going to crush those who live in this deviance. Now, these are people who said, we're not going to have this king rule over us. The Bible is very clear about this. The world's going to be full of them. These are people that will take the, the number of the beast, the 666. They don't want anything to do with the holiness and righteousness of God. They're separate from that altogether. They will see Jesus and they will mourn. And then Elton John will sing, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road and Rainbow One Two. And you know especially who is going to mourn? This is very sad, folks, but especially who is going to mourn? Israel will mourn. Look at Mark, or I'll read it to you rather. Mark 14, if you want to turn there, that's fine. When Jesus was taken before the high priest at his mock trial at the crucifixion, just before the crucifixion, Mark 14, verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Pay attention to that. He said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we have any further witnesses? We have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Now, let me just stop there. This wasn't going to be in the message, but I think that I need to say this. They struck him with the palms of their hands. They said he ought to be crucified. And do you know why? Because of those very sins that I talked to you about a moment ago. You know, I I don't want to be too big on mentioning sins of gays and lesbians and so forth. Let me tell you something about this. You are a sinner. And I am a sinner. And I can't single out the sins of somebody else and say, everybody's going to hell but me. I was going to hell too. I was going to hell too. I'm as bad a sinner as anybody's a sinner. And the good news that we find in all of this, which we'll hopefully get to as we go through, is that Jesus is an answer to all of this sin. We don't need to hide our sins, cover it up, and and say we don't have it. Let's just confess it and get rid of it and say, let's do God's thing. Let's go the way that God says to go. Let's repent of sin and be what he wants us to be. But what do you think about the Jews who are in rejection of Christ? Are they going to be happy to see him? I mean, all these years that they've carried on, the very same blasphemy of Christ, are they going to be glad to see the king that they sent to a cross? 
I don't think so. I think they're going to mourn. I think they're going to be gripped with fear. And if Christ should appear with a cross, it will be to burn in this image. Look what you did. Do you think that you can kill the Prince of Glory and not pay the price? All sinners, do you understand this? Do you think that each of us can kill the Prince of Glory and not pay the price for doing that? Rest assured, the price will be paid. You can count on this, that when you come face to face with the one that you killed, the one who has the power to destroy you, and the one who displays all of this power, you're in big trouble. And for 2,000 years, Israel has turned away. And it's going to be a time filled with frightening regret. Ah, but didn't I tell you there's some good news in all of this? Didn't I say that there's good news in what Christ is coming for? Let me show you something. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12. And this is an easy one for you to find because it's the second book to the last of the Old Testament. A few weeks ago in our fundamentals class, we looked at Psalm 136 where it says 26 times, His mercy endureth forever. Now what is the central theme of the Bible? I gave you at the very beginning, what's the most important event that we read about the Bible? It is the second coming of Christ. It's the glorious kingdom of Christ that comes to the earth. And who was given that promise? Israel. Now, God has promised to populate the world with all, or the kingdom rather, with all the nations of the world, but the promise is given specifically to Israel. Now look at the mercy of God. Zechariah 12, verse 8. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, listen, the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And so in that day, Christ is going to pour out his spirit of grace, he says, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now here's what happens. In the tribulation period, there are thousands of Jews that are brought to faith in Christ. Thousands come to recognize him as the Savior, though they had rejected him, and they rejected him, and they rejected him. Do you know what happens? God is merciful. God is merciful and he's gracious. God is long-suffering. And so he pours out his spirit of grace. And we would ask, who is more deserving of the wrath of God than us? Who's more deserving than those who, including you and me, that would, all of us, we would send Jesus to the cross in a heartbeat? No, Israel will mourn. But let's understand something about the mourning that it talks about here. This is a different type of mourning that we read just a moment ago. This is not the mourning of fear. This is the morning of sorrow. This is the morning of regret as they look at what they did to Christ. These are people that have been brought to the marvelous grace of Christ, to the salvation in Christ, and they're going to mourn. They mocked him and they spat on him. They beat him. They drove nails into his hands and feet. They raised that cross to the sky and they dropped it into a hole with a thud and his whole body shook with the torment 
of being placed on that cross. And then when he was thirsty, they hoisted up a sponge that was filled with vinegar and they held it to his lips and said, drink this. And we say, how cruel, how depraved that people would act like this. What should he do to those people? Your answer and mine is destroy them. But what does he do? There's mercy. And it was Jesus who cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so he pours out this spirit of grace, and they begin to mourn for their awful crime. They mourn because they rejected the kingdom the first time, and what did they do? They subjected themselves to hundreds of years of needless sorrow. But now they recognize him. And what does Jesus say? Matthew 5, 4, he said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. God pours out his mercy and a spirit of grace. Now let me show you another passage. This one you're more familiar with. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Do you really understand what Isaiah 53 is about? Most people don't. They read this and they're not really clued in as to what particular time that this is talking about. And most of us look at some far distant past, but it's not talking about that. But rather it's speaking about the remnant of Jews in the tribulation who come to understand who Christ really is. They're going to understand something very special about this one that they pierced. They thought that he was an imposter. They thought that he came to destroy the laws of Moses. They thought that they were justified in inflicting wounds upon him because that's punishment for his crimes, for what he did, what he said. This is okay. We can crucify him. But here's what they discover. Look at verses 4 through 6 in Isaiah 53. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Do you understand? We esteemed him smitten of God. We said God did this to him. God, he deserved this. God did this to him. But he was wounded for Our transgressions, not his. He was bruised for our iniquities, not his. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes or with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now do you see? They are going to look on the one they pierced. And they're going to say, he was bruised for our iniquities. It was stripes that were we laid on him that were actually for us it's by those wounds that were healed and so they discover the pain and the suffering the cross was for them and do you know what that is that is grace and do you understand that every lost sinner that comes to christ realizes the same that christ pours out his spirit of grace and then you begin to see him differently the one that you mocked, the one that you wanted nothing to do with, the one you said was a fraud, the one you said restricts your freedom, the one you said takes away my fun, he pours out a spirit of grace. And what does he do? He changes your mind. He brings you to faith in him. Folks, this is an act of a merciful, sovereign, almighty God. Can you see this? You're not going to change. You're not going to turn around. You're not going any way but your own. And God changes your mind and opens up the beauty of Jesus Christ that you see everything he did is for me. And so you sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
And you have to see yourself that way. You must see yourself as a wretched sinner who pierced the hands of Jesus. That every sorrow that went through his body was because of you. And you have to see that your crimes are great, but not so great that they can't be covered by the grace of God. Now, the coming of the Lord is going to be a time of stunning recognition and a time of frightening regret. Now, let me close with this. Stay with me a little bit longer. I don't see how we can be in a hurry when we're talking about the Bible's greatest promise. Thirdly is, it is a time of collecting the redeemed. Now, bless your soul with this verse, verse 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, I've recently given you three sermons on the elect chosen ones of God, so I think you know who they are. Some read this passage of Scripture, and they limit here the elect to the Jews. But I think that if we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see that Christ intends all nations that will enter into his kingdom to worship him. And he's going to send the angels. The Word of God says he will send the angels. Now, angels are always gatherers. This is what angels do. They are the collectors. Sometimes they collect evil men. Revelation 14, verse 18, And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in her sick, his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now quickly there, that, that, that clusters, the clusters of the vine of the earth, these are evil men. They're gathered together to this great battle of Armageddon, and their God is going to have vengeance on them, and God tramples them under the feet of his armies. Armageddon is that last great battle that happens in the world before the king comes back, and in that battle he wins the world back to himself. And so by virtue of his power and authority, he establishes the long-promised kingdom on the earth. The angels start off by, or at this particular point, I should say, they have gathered men, the clusters of the vine, that are going to be thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. But angels also gather others. They collect the elect. Angels collect the elect. And it says here from the four winds, that means from everywhere, from all over the earth. They gather them when Christ is ready to go into the kingdom, and they go with him when he returns in power and great glory. Now let me take just a few more minutes in closing to tell you who's coming with him. And you need to hear this. Whether you're saved or lost, you need to hear this. The hot dog can wait just a minute longer if that's okay. I mean, coming with, back with Christ will be the angels. We read that in verse number 31. I don't know how many angels there are. I do know this, that one angel in one night was able to kill 185,000 Assyrians. And I suspect that he would be able to kill many, many more if it had been so designed for him to do that. I don't know how many there are. There are multi-millions of them, so many the Bible doesn't even bother counting them and telling us how many angels there are. But that's not all that's coming back with Christ. The angels will come back, but not all. Now, I didn't talk to you about the rapture today much because this text says immediately after the tribulation. And I didn't talk to you about the church today because the text says immediately after the tribulation. So I know the rapture and the church are not involved. But I do know this, that if you are a believer, that you have something much better to look forward to than the tribulation. 
Now notice what Paul wrote in Colossians 3 verse 4 when he said, When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now going back to Matthew, he's coming in power and great glory. And when he shall appear, you shall appear with him in power and great glory. What does that mean? It means you're going to ride in on the clouds with him. You're going to be with Jesus. You're not going to be one of those that's frightened at the coming of the Christ. You're going to be the one who strikes fear in the people of this earth. You're coming back with Jesus. Now the world is going to look up into the clouds and all across the world they'll see this great rider on the white horse who is Jesus Christ and in his hand is a sword and there's a stunning vast army that follows him. Behind him there are angels in, in majesty, clothed with majesty and appearing with them are not the backup singers. And appearing with them are not the privates of the army. Appearing with them are those who are leading the charge with Jesus Christ. These are the people of God. Listen to this prophecy in Jude. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How far back does this prophecy go? Well, didn't I tell you the second coming is the greatest event forecast in the Bible? And it goes all the way back to the seventh generation from Adam. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 5, folks, before the flood even happened. There was a man named Enoch who was a prophet, and he walked with God. And he prophesied beyond the first advent. He prophesied beyond the entire church age that we're living now. He prophesied to the second coming of Jesus Christ in clouds with glory with his saints. All the way back then, before the flood ever happened, God showed this man Enoch the second coming. And that prophecy was so thrilling to him that Enoch said to God, I can't wait, i got to go now. And the Bible says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now that's my interpretation. When you get your turn to preach, you can give yours. Only if it agrees with mine, of course. So this, this is thrilling stuff here. I mean, we, we can't imagine what the second coming will be like. Nobody's going to mistake this. Every eye will see him. John said in the Revelation, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. The one that they pierced, every eye shall see him. Now, as we go to the last thought here in this, under this point, Behold, he cometh with clouds. In Matthew, they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. In Luke 21, 27, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Mark 14, 62, you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. In the clouds, and the clouds, and the clouds. And my father, who was also a preacher, had his thoughts about clouds. And you might think this is a little bit peculiar. But instead of having, fo fo having photo albums that were filled with pictures of kids... He had photo albums that were filled with pictures of clouds. He loved these huge cumulus clouds that we got in Kentucky, the big thunder clouds that we would get, and he loved to take pictures of clouds. And I remember I was sitting with him, uh, beside him on an airliner, and he always liked to sit at the window because he liked to look out the window at the clouds. And I remember that one day that he turned to me, and with a tear in his eyes, he said, I love clouds. 
They remind me of Jesus. He's coming in the clouds. Do you look at clouds that way? Bob may remember an old Joni Mitchell song. And she said, I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down and still somehow. It's clouds illusions, I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. I know clouds. Clouds are a reminder that Jesus is coming back. Back in Kentucky, there was an old black preacher that had a TV program, had a public access channel, and every one of his programs began exactly the same way. There was a scene of clouds, and then there was a... Rep, re, uh, recitation of Revelation 1 verse 7, Behold, he comes with clouds. And this old black preacher, he had this little bitty brick church, little, little bitty brick building. And when I was young, the church was out of town. I mean, it was out in the middle of a cornfield on a country road. But as I grew up, the church began to grow out towards that little church. And finally, it was surrounded by a neighborhood. And so they built a huge church about 500 feet within sight of this little brick building. And this church was, it had a, a, a spire that was at least 10 stories tall. And this is one of those churches that was a social gospel church. And, and they, they had their bands and they had all of this going on. And they rocked out for Jesus every Sunday morning. And there was still that little old black preacher who had his cable program. And he was still in that little church there with just a handful of people. And every Sunday he would start out with a very simple gospel. Behold, he comes in the clouds, and he was looking for Jesus. Stories like that I don't think ever get old. It's the same old message we've been preaching for 2,000 years since Jesus was here. He's coming back, folks. It's a sure thing. He's coming back. It's a time of stunning recognition, a time of frightening regret. It's a time of collecting the redeemed. And I'm going to ask you, where do you think you're going to be? When Jesus comes back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. And what a great subject we've had before us today. Please excuse the feeble way that the material is presented. Because we we just really can't talk about this. And the majesty and splendor that it deserves. The awesome reverence that should come through this subject. Lord, we know you're coming back. We thank you for that. It's the greatest promise in the Bible. So we know it's going to happen, and we anxiously await your return. We know there are people here today uh, that don't know you as Savior. We, We pray for them. We ask, Lord, you'd speak to their hearts and help them to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I've said in the sermon today, all of us are sinners. There's none of us can point to ourselves and say that we're better than somebody else, that our sins don't reach the level of somebody else's sins. And though we may mention some and... We could just as well go down the list of everyone that we commit, uh, the, the things that are in our heart, the, the hatred, the stubbornness that we have, just so many things that are in us. And we have no perfection, no way to come to you. But we thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ came to be perfection for us, to be righteousness for us. And all we need to do is to turn it all over to you and receive the marvelous grace of God into our lives. Lord, speak to some soul today. As Christians, draw us near to you. Help us to continually look for Jesus and to tell people he's coming again. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.